Welcome to In Your Area. I'm your host, Brian Statt, the Provincial Practice Advisor here at Area. In today's episode, I get the amazing opportunity to chat with Mark Sokolnicki, a Regional Compliance Manager for the Financial Tracking and Analysis Centre, which you all know as FinTrack. In our conversation, we touch on all the questions you have about the finer points of FinTrack regulations, but we're scared to ask, as well as some of the best practice suggestions and practical advice. We hope you enjoy. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of In Your Area. Our guest today is a very special guest, actually. Uh, his name is Mark Sokolnicki, and he's a regional compliance manager for FinTrack out of their Vancouver office. And Mark has been with FinTrack for almost 10 years, so we're pretty excited about that. Um, he has managed and conducted various compliance examinations across a wide array of sectors, including substantial involvement within the real estate sector. Mark is also a skilled presenter and has held several compliance-related roles within federal departments as a public servant since 1999. That's like a life sentence, Mark. Thanks a lot for, uh, for coming <laughs> online with us. I appreciate it very much. I've given away my age, I guess, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, you must have started with the federal government sometime in your teens, I'm assuming. So, um, I think you're just—I think you're just being—you're just being friendly there. <laughs> but I uh, no, I started. I started when I was twenty, twenty-one, and uh, and for most of my government, uh, federal government roles, it's been in in compliance. So when joining FinTrack uh, back in two thousand fourteen, it was an easy transition because. Uh, a lot of the audit functions uh, carry over from department to department. So uh, all in all, I'm really happy to be here and uh, happy to discuss any items that the uh, that the audience wants to hear. That's awesome. I appreciate it. So basically, um, here in Alberta, Area has really done a big push on it, trying to get uh, brokerages and associates up to a level standard of FinTrack compliance. And we've produced a lot of tools for brokerages and, and things like that. Um, but there always seems to be sort of these little, you know, detail-based questions that that come up systematically. So that's really going to be the topic for today. I mean, there's a bunch of things that I think we're going to be able to chat about that I think a lot of our listeners, especially realtor members, are, are really going to be interested to uh, hear the answer about directly from the uh, from a compliance fella at, over at FinTrack. So we're pretty excited about that. So let's just jump right in. Are you ready? Perfect. Yes. All right. Well, let's start out with probably the the most common interaction with FinTrack when it comes to realtor members, and that's individual identification. So um, our individual identification process, you know, we have forms and things that are provided by CREA. Um, and I guess the process itself seems pretty straightforward. You You get a piece of ID, photo identification, you sit with that person, you make sure it's the same person on that ID, you complete a bunch of uh, stuff on the form. And I think I think most of our people or most of our listeners probably have that down. But uh, what happens when somebody decides that they're not going to provide ID, they absolutely refuse, or they say they're only going to do it at the lawyer's office when there's a transaction? Is that is that an option under FinTrack regulations? As per FinTrack requirements, those that fall within the act, so specific to the real estate sector, would be uh, real estate brokerages, sales representatives, and at times real estate developers must verify the identity of persons or entities when there's a purchase or sale of real estate, uh, and all, and to also carry out their due diligence um, 
when dealing with the clients. So in instances where they do refuse, our guidance is you could carry on with the transaction, but take note that you're non-compliant with your client identification and most likely record keeping obligations. Well, thanks for that, Mark. One thing that popped into my mind when we're talking about the real estate side of things, I mean, we definitely need to identify clients from the standpoint of the Real Estate Act and making sure that the person who is selling the property owns the property, that the person we're dealing with from a buyer standpoint is actually, you know, the legal entity who's actually going to be end up on title or who's transacting. So from that standpoint, if somebody is, if, if they're doing that FinTrack identification and somebody's like, absolutely not, you can't see my ID, that causes a problem on the real estate end but it certainly causes a problem on the FinTrack end. Um, is that a place where maybe the, the realtor member should just put the brakes on and say, you know, well, I need to stop. I need to talk to somebody. I'm going to go talk to the compliance officer at my brokerage. Is that a, is that a good piece of advice? Yeah, no, definitely. I, I always recommend, uh, in this case, individual sales agents to go ahead and approach their compliance officer, whoever's in charge of compliance in regards to our act, if they have any questions or any concerns. So in this case, if they're representing a buyer, but the buyer refuses to provide the ID when requested, that would be a means of, of uh, obtaining advice from their from their compliance officer. You know, this could be one indicator together with other indicators that perhaps are not present at that time or not as uh, noticeable. But when you're looking at the transaction holistically, this could be one of multiple indicators that may lead the agent or the compliance officer of the brokerage to determine that reasonable grounds to suspect have been reached which would then therefore require the real estate brokerage to submit a suspicious transaction report to FinTrack. All right. Well, that's, it's good advice. I, the other thing that came across my desk the other day was uh, regarding the uh, dual process method. So when we're talking about an individual ID, there's a, a dual process method that is you know, part of FinTrack regulations if required. Um, that dual process method allows for two um, different pieces of information to be used in specific subset categories. And of course, um, those, those explanations are on the forms themselves. But um, what really came up from dual process was, uh, is this a method that can be used in order to identify somebody who's remote? Or is that agent mandatory the only option in that situation if somebody's not within the jurisdiction? Yeah, I know the dual process method basically is it's a method to be used when there's no photo ID involved. And the remote piece that you're asking, actually all methods could be used and it would be done through a mandatory. Mm -hmm. So for example, the photo ID method, credit file method, reliance method, affiliate method, and uh, obviously the usage of a mandatory. So the, the dual process method, what I would say would be, again, if, if the client doesn't have a picture ID, maybe perhaps the, the client is elderly or hasn't renewed their picture ID, but has other forms to prove their name, uh, their address and their date of birth, that would be the best option to use in that scenario. Photo ID, you could still use it when, you're, when they're not physically present. But the issue is that the ID, you would have to enter the ID using a software program to detect its validity. The way they do this is they compare the picture and some of the, um, the elements with the, the, within the ID to known characteristics, uh, security features, and other markers in order to determine the authenticity of the document. So that could be a way of doing it. But what we would ask reporting entities is to have this type of process in place, documented within their policies and procedures. It's rarer, 
And it may happen 5% of the time or even less. And usually the, what I've seen through examinations in that case is that a reporting entity would, uh, a real estate brokerage would be using a mandatory in those scenarios. Yeah. Uh, so basically dual process methods. So let's say we have an elderly person. Um, they've been living in a senior's residence for a number of years. They don't drive. They don't require an Alberta I photo ID card or whatever, don't have a valid passport. Well, now we got a problem, but they may have other pieces of identification. So you're sitting with a real live breathing human being. You have no reason to suspect them of, you know, money laundering or, or uh, proceeds from crime, um, but they just don't have a photo ID to verify. That's when the dual, dual, um, uh, dual ID method would work. But if there's, if there's no living, breathing human being in front of you, then we're looking at either an electronic remote process that's been sort of approved through, you know, not approved, but would uh, meet FinTrack regulations, as you mentioned, or an agent mandatory. Is that right? That's correct. And the, the software program would be, you know, we, we, you know the, there's several software programs out there and we would never be in a position where we would say one over the other. Um, but there are software programs that would be able to to um, to meet that requirement to ensure that it is a valid ID. So that is a method. But then the dual process, like you said, in the case where, I, and I didn't, I don't, I don't mean to pick on the elderly. People. I just <laughs> trying to find an example where you know perhaps a, a more frequent example where somebody would not have picture ID or perhaps it's expired. Um, that is correct. So that the the all in all. You know, the photo ID method is probably the easiest because, you know, you're face to face with a person, you see their ID and the case where they're remote, then, uh, you know, an effective method would be the usage of a mandatory. Uh, the only thing that I would say with the mandatory, though, is that there, there has to be an agreement in place, right? And the agreement has to be set up by the real estate brokerage. And when there is a mandatory um there needs to be a clear understanding what the requirements are. And some of the indicators, and I, I infer, I talked about some of the indicators in a couple minutes, uh, a couple seconds ago um, on uh, the reluctance of providing ID. But there are other indicators such as hesitation when asked questions perhaps about their occupation. When somebody's a mandatory and they provide the information back to you, sometimes that information not be, may not be captured unless the mandatory has a clear understanding as what is the intent of obtaining the ID and what are some of the uh, nonverbal uh, indicators that could be uh, that they could advise the reporting and the real estate brokerage of uh, in order for them to apply to their risk model system. So it's kind of a two piece thing where, you know, is, there is a mandatory as possible as long as there's a clear understanding what the requirements and the obligations are. Yeah, I, there's a, I guess that handles one of the questions that you just touched on about uh, what I one of the questions I had about mandatories, and that is that it's the the reporting entity under the regulations is the real estate brokerage. So it would be the broker who would have to enter into a mandatory agreement. Is that right? Not the agent? It's it would be under the brokerage. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then I guess the other thing that that I often get questions about is is there a requirement for who that mandatory could be? So oftentimes this is not like a different place in Canada. Sometimes this is hey, I I need to have somebody ID'd in the Philippines. Is there a level of professionalism or professional criterion that uh, that the regulation set? Does it have to be a notary or a you know a lawyer or somebody in that jurisdiction, or is it up to the broker to determine that they're comfortable with that? It's up to the broker to determine their their level of uh, of comfort. 
And so this is where kind of the, the risk the risk assessment that uh, we require uh, real estate brokerages to have within their compliance program um, is to really look at that risk appetite. So obviously, if it's someone who is perhaps, say, a relative of the client, then there is going to be a higher risk level as opposed to somebody who's in a professional designation. Because if there's any, not to say that there would be deceit, but say in the case that they were somebody in a professional position would be more reluctant to to uh, conduct that because they run the risk of jeopardizing the profession they got more skin in the game yeah that's correct <laughs> um so well let's just let's just talk about the uh the corporate idea as well because when you're doing identification sometimes it's an individual sometimes it's a corporate entity and one of the most common questions that i ever get about corporate id is you know what is the level of depth that that somebody has to go to in order to verify the true owners the individual owners of the of the corporation and i know you know about a year or so ago fintrack came out with some updates one of those was a beneficial ownership um requirement and that's where you you need to dial into all those individuals who own part of the corporation, 25% or more, I believe. Um, and in cases where a corporation owns part of the corporation, so like these sort of staggered, you know, like the uh, stacking dolls, you have part, a corporation owns more than 25% of the corporation who's trading. Do we need to dig into that corporation as well and then find out who those beneficial owners are? How deep do we go uh, when, we're, when we're chasing down that rabbit hole? The beneficial ownership has to be at the individual level. So in the instance where, uh, based on documentation that's been provided, company XYZ owns 50%, and then John Smith owns the other 50%, then you do have to go back to the XYZ company, determine who the individual owners of that are, and does that amount to 25% or more for the, the entity that's, being, uh, that's part of the transaction. Um, in regards to what level or what type of documentation do you need in order to make the determination of beneficial ownership? This information could actually be provided from the client verbally or in writing, but this is where the whole risk level, the risk assessment uh, appetite comes into play. So if somebody who's providing it to you verbally, you know, you're going by their word, right? But if they're providing some type of form, some form of documentation, either they provide it to you or you obtain it on the other end, then that the risk level then therefore uh, decreases. So, for example, you could you could have the you could uh, have the entity provide you with official documentation. The entity could tell you the beneficial ownership information, and you could write it down and uh, for your rec record keeping purposes. Uh, or the entity could fill out a documentation to provide to you with the information. So, when they provide that to you, you're kind of fulfilling two things. You're obtaining the information, but they're also attesting to it in writing. So there are some reporting entities that have they create a templated form uh, for their client to complete. I'm not sure if Korea provides a, a resource or not. And if they do, then that's something that could be used as a form. So you are obtaining the information and you're getting them to sign off, providing that uh, that written attestation that it's valid. Obviously, if the information is provided to through some formal uh, official documentation, the risk level is lower than if it's been provided to you. Uh, if it's provided to you in writing and there's an attestation a portion to it, then one can conclude that it's less riskier than if it's just simply provided to you verbally. Yeah, in Alberta, we have the opportunity always to uh, pull the corporate registry documents. 
that they file every year with the Alberta government. So it it shows all of the all of the owners of that corp in that in that document. So that's probably you know at a very base level. I not all corporations are created equal, um, and sometimes you you have a situation where you need to get that information directly from them. But um, most of the time, you can pull the corporate registry here in Alberta. You can find out who the the owners are and what percentage of their of ownership they hold. Uh, and then if you need to pull a subsequent, you know, registry for XYZ company, to use your example, the advantage to that as well is under the, under the registry system, corporate registry sh- system for Service Alberta, they're providing a document that they are validating as current. So they're a current, you know, corporation that is being used in Alberta and they're, they're validating that. So, you know, the, it sort of prevents the possibility that you might run into um, either fraudulent documents or old documents. So the directors or the owners have changed since that document was produced. And that's, so normally that's kind of our best practices here in Alberta, but there are times where, where things are a little bit different. So I totally get that. I was going to say, this is the opportunity for me to plug in our, our website because our website provides guidance on each of the obligations and it will also provide sample doc a list of sample documents that you'll be able to obtain this information from which would be then official documentation um yeah and and everything else honestly that we're going to be that we've talked about thus far and what we're going to most likely speak of uh during this podcast uh everything could be found on our website it is a long website so i won't list it out but if you simply just google fintrack (laughs) you you'll find the right path okay great i so probably the next you know, most frequent document that people are connected with in regards to FinTrack on a transactional basis is receipt of funds. Um, a couple of big questions always come up from members about receipt of funds. The Probably the number one, uh, at least in our modern context now, is what if the money is e-transferred directly from the buyer to the, to the trustee or the seller's brokerage in most cases? Um, if, it, if it bypasses the buyer's brokerage, does the buyer's brokerage still have to cre- have to create the receipt of funds record? That's that's one of the biggest questions. That is correct. And and one way of, one way of going about it is is knowing that if you represent a buyer, you're going to have that requirement. Hmm. And uh, you know, in the you, there could be a procedure. There could be a a procedure in place uh, where if you're representing a buyer. You know, the preferable method would be for the buyer's agent to rep- to uh, receive the funds, so you avoid that 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 situation. Uh, there could, you know, obviously with e-transfer, it's simple. It's it's a one you know one-stop transaction, whatnot. You know, you just you enter the amount that you want to deposit. It goes into the uh, the listing agent's uh, um, bank account, trust fund, whatnot, or trust account. You know, I can see that happening. But it, it is the obligation of the agent representing the buyer to obtain that information. And the information, you know, a lot of people say, why do I have to always complete these records? Uh, what's the purpose behind it? And I'll give you a scenario where I think it would really open the eyes of, of, uh, of those listening uh, as to the, the reason why we, we do ask for this. So in the receipt of funds record, there is uh, there is a section that we require uh, real estate brokerage to make reasonable efforts to obtain the account for which the cu- the funds derive from. So it wouldn't be the account number of the bank draft because there is usually an account number on a bank draft, but it's the account, usually the checking account where the funds 
came from to purchase that bank draft. And the reason being is in the instance where there's a suspicious transaction report, where we require a real estate brokerage to provide details of the individuals involved, um, the, amount of, the amount of the transaction, and other information such as account information aware of from where the funds came from to fulfill the, the, uh, the deposit. If an SPR a suspicious transaction report is filed and that they, we have that account information, we have thousands and hundreds of thousands of STRs in our database. So if there is another STR that contains that account information, we make that, we make that connection. So it's a web of intelligence that potentially could be formed. So if that information is not available, I wouldn't say it decreases the, the intelligence product of that suspicious transaction report, but it definitely enhances it. It allows it to form those, those uh, relationships or the, those connections that we see amongst other uh, suspicious transaction reports. Therefore, I would highly recommend having a process either to to, to receive the funds and you could, you're able to complete the form with all the required information or the inf and, and the information where we require reporting entities to, to take reasonable measures to obtain. Or in the instance where there's an e-transfer, uh, a procedure in place to obtain that information from the client. And in the instance of an e-transfer too, it, the e-transfer could actually be coming from a different account. It could be coming from the account of the parent or another third party. So that information is not, uh, could not perhaps is not mo it's not readily readily available if any transfers made to the listing brokerage's account. Whereas if the the bank draft is provided to the agent that's representing the buyer, they're going to be able to to note who is the person providing the funds, ask about the 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 account information where the funds uh, come from. And they're also going to be able to make those um, determinations of, of perhaps some uh, nonverbal indicators that may be present that they would note uh, in order to holistically assess the possibility of money laundering or terrorist financing involved within the transaction. Right. Yeah. So in situations where the where the uh, brokerage is representing both the buyer and the seller, um, because it's a, a, a buyer brokerage responsibility, as we just talked about, is it, does that mean that that brokerage, even though they're holding the trust fund, uh, the trust monies, and they're representing both parties, there still needs to be a record produced, right? And that comes back down to the uh, to the account number thing that we're just talking about. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I mean, uh, you know, the, obviously, the whole point of FinTrack, just to sort of recenter our discussion, is is that we're trying to, you know, aid in in curbing terrorist financing, proceeds of crime, money laundering, those types of activities, which all of us can agree. I mean, we might not like the paperwork or the process or all the things that go into it, but all of us can agree that if there is a way that we can, you know, take some simple steps and create this web of intelligence to stop terrorist financing, for example, um, or child trafficking somewhere overseas, then this is something that I think we, sh we should all be doing. So uh, on that note, um, let's talk about terrorist lists. So, I mean, obviously in 2001 and following, um, there's a sort of an increased production, let's say, of terrorist lists, at least for, from, for public consumption. Um, but is there a list to check for FinTrack? Like if, if I'm identifying somebody as a realtor, 
should I be checking a terrorist list that is compiled by the by the government or the UN or something like that? The list could be found on the Justice, Justice Laws website. And previous to this, there was uh, a consolidated list that would um, that would capture the results of various lists and would just have it in one nice package, I guess, so to speak. But that was unfortunately that's no longer uh, available. And the list that we re we recommend those to to make that determination would be found on the Justice Laws website. Additionally, if there's any other lists that uh, that are available or any adverse media found, those are some of the resources that we would we recommend and suggest reporting entities to use. One of the questions that that does come up, I have a sense that you were going to ask me this too, is um, when do they make that determination? Um, what we've advised during examinations is when an R, when a reporting entity has to conduct enhanced due diligence. So enhanced due diligence is a form of increased ongoing monitoring. So asking for something in addition to what you normally ask during a business relationship and conducting more frequent ongoing monitoring. So those at the enhanced due diligence requirement is uh, mandated for clients that you've deemed high risk. So when you're in a high risk relationship with a client. So one of the elements to fulfill that enhanced requirement is to review their name against the lists. You know, Obviously, if a, if, a, if a real estate brokerage does it for all of their clients, we're not going to say not do it because they're going to go above and beyond what we, what we require them to do. But there has to be a, a documented procedure within their, their policies and procedures of how they conduct this. So what I really stress is, is consistency and rhyme and reason. So if you have a policy and procedure in place that states that you do this, if this happens, what we look at is, is it applied adequately throughout their business operations? And is there a purpose? Because going back, I was going to say something um, a little later on, but I think this is a perfect moment to, to state this is in order to be in order to be in the best position possible to detect suspicious transactions and, sus and suspicious behavior uh, is to have a robust compliance program in place. So I go back to when I spoke about the uh, the record, the um, receipt of fund records, and what's the purpose of capturing all that information, is to add that intelligence component in the event that you do submit a suspicious transaction report. Other record keeping information is required in order for you to make that determination. So, um, for example, you there's a transaction where uh, there's a for a certain dollar amount. I'm just throwing a, a dollar amount, say two million dollars. And the occupation that's listed uh, by the client, that's provided by the client, it's not commensurate. It's not a it's not a position that would allow for such a high purchase. That would raise a red flag. But in order for you to make that determination, it would have to be within the record. So it, it, it's it, it's if in the event that you submit a suspicious transaction report, the information that you're providing is is accurate and and it's it's it depicts the client that you're submitting the reporting the suspicious transaction report on but it also aids you to conduct your ongoing monitoring and to make that determination of something suspicious so the event that say i i i'll use myself as an example i purchased a home in 2017 i stated my occupation was this i bought a property for five hundred thousand dollars right now i come and you ask me for my occupation and I have the same occupation that I listed in 2017. I'm able to sell my property for 650 or 700,000, but now I'm purchasing a property for 1.5 million. I've kept the same occupation, 
where am I obtaining those additional $700,000 or $800,000? And that would be an instance where I would advise a report, a reporting entity, a real estate brokerage to, to ask questions, you know, in this case, the agent, because they would be representing, uh, the, the, the client in this case, you know, and there could be a valid reason. And so the due diligence process is to obtain that information from the client. So there could be an instance where the client says, I sold a, a vacation property down south and the funds that I obtained from that enables me to purchase this new property, or it could be due to inheritance of some sort. And if that's the case, then, you know, there's a possibility that the, that information provided by the client will then reduce the inherent risk that may be present due to the factors that are within the transaction. The only way you're able to do that is to conduct effective ongoing monitoring. And you don't have to be intrusive. The agent doesn't have to be intrusive. It just, you're just simply conducting due diligence where somebody from the, looking from the outside in would say, yes, they're doing their job. And a lot of times what we get is that we've had reporting, uh, reporting entities, real estate brokerages state that, you know, uh, they don't want to be investigators and we're not asking people to be investigators. Uh, we're just asked, we're just asking them to conduct due diligence when, when warranted. Right. Uh, it makes sense. I mean, it's good. It's good common sense stuff as the person at the ground level, somebody, the realtor out on the street, if they're in that situation and the, something just doesn't seem to pass the smell test, you know, just cycling back to that compliance officer, you know, piece again, if you go and talk to the compliance officer at your, uh, officer at your brokerage, they're detached from the transaction. They may have an objective view of that too and, and ask questions that you may not have thought of, like where did they get the additional funds to buy the $1.8 million property? So, you know, sometimes that's uh, an extra stop as well. Just, you know, a gut check. You know, something doesn't feel right about this. Let me tell you the circumstances and, and you tell me what you think, sort of. And just to add to that, Brian, too, the importance of record keeping is in the instance where a compliance officer is at ABC Realty and on due diligence, ongoing monitoring is conducted at the agent level because they have the best awareness of their client. But then it could, there could be another level of review done by the compliance officer when they're reviewing the transactions as they come in. But say that compliance officer then moves over to a another organization and you have a new compliance officer there. In order for them to actually conduct effective ongoing monitoring of that client, they're, they're going to rely on the records that are on hand. If there is no records or the records don't have sufficient detail, um, they're not going to be able to make that determination and they're not going to be able to establish a trend. And what I mean by trend, I could say you know, the purpose of the transaction that's recorded, the purpose and intended nature of the business relationship is purse for personal residence. But then all of a sudden I start purchasing properties every seven, eight months. Then maybe the, 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 the purpose and intended nature of that business relationship is more investment. And so you, you're able to see kind of a pattern throughout, say, a five-year period of how many purchase and sales as I've made. And you could only do that if somebody stepped in new into the role of a compliance officer through the record keeping. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes good sense for sure. I, you know, since we were talking about the terrorist list, the other one that popped into my mind was about terrorist property. You know, there's a requirement to make a report if that, you know, if you believe that somebody's trying to sell terrorist property. Uh, my question has always been, how do you know it's terrorist property? Like, you know, maybe it's a, I don't know, it's a 
Hell's Angels clubhouse or something, and everybody knows that. But uh, a lot of times, I mean, nobody's going to put a sign on the lawn saying this is a terrace property. How how is an agent expected to know what it what a terrace property is? Well, like I was saying before, the if there's a, if in the in the instance where there's other indicators involved, and it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody that's already been noted as a high risk client, but there's something that uh, an indicator that triggers you to conduct more thorough review. Um, then we would we would state to the the real estate brokerage to review those lists that I mentioned before, and then in order and if there's a positive match, then there there could very well be a situation where a terrorist property report would be filed. And one of the questions we always ask is, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping back and forth, but if if there's an STR, should that should that uh, should an agent stop the transaction? In the event of an STR, no, we say go ahead with the transaction. We 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 definitely want you to 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 earn a living. Uh, but all we ask for is for you to report that as in a suspicious transaction report if it's warranted, in order for us to add to the intelligence component. Um, because most likely, if we're receiving a report from a real estate brokerage, a suspicious transaction report, uh, other sectors that fall within our act most likely have submitted a report on that individual as well. And if there's multiple reports, not just say from a financial institution, but also from the real estate brokerage, one can conclude that 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 report from the financial institution institution is actually now less objective because now multiple eyes have seen the same thing and have reported it as such. Um, going back to the terrorist property report, that would be the only situation if if it's deemed that, uh, so prop, what property means is basically the money used to purchase the property. Um, so if the individual or the group that is purchasing the property or selling, you found that they are a terrorist property, they do fall within that category, that would be the only situation where we would we, we, it is required for you not to go ahead with the transaction and to also uh, make the disclosure to the RCMP and CSIS at the same time. And on our website, we have the instruction and the, um, the contact information where to, where, the, where to send that to. Yeah, the, the only other one that I can think of that's like that is the ministerial regulation about um, North Korea. So if you have clients in North Korea trying to buy Canadian property, stop everything you're doing and make a report. Am I right <laughs> about that? Uh, well, yes, because most likely they would fall within a, a sanctioned list. Um, not necessarily terrorist property, but uh, you know, I would then therefore apply the risk the the risk model or your each individual brokerage's risk appetite in that scenario. So <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so the other thing that popped um, up about uh, well, in the last amendment to the regulations or the last update to the regulations that uh, came out was. Um, the PEPIO, so that that sounds a little bit like a disease, but essentially what we're talking about is politically exposed persons or heads of international organizations, and, and uh, we do have a we do have a form that was pr produced by CREA in order to aid the membership um, in this particular uh, venture of asking the question. Um, the most common thing that I hear from uh, brokers is. Is this is the is the record for Pepio supposed to be done for every single client identification, or is Pepio done by asking the questions 
or trying to determine if they're a politically exposed person or head of an international organization. And if they answer to the affirmative or there's a thought that there is a, an affirmative answer in, you know, somewhere in their um, their identification, then they would proceed with the with the record. Is that the is that the right approach or does FinTrack recommend every single um, interaction with an individual has to have a PEPHIO record attached? The record is only required when it's a positive determination. However, as an examiner, one that would come into a, a real estate brokerage and reviewing the records, unless it's specified in the policies and procedures that this is the this is the the way that business is, is done, that where a record will only be maintained if there's a positive determination, and the procedure says that a determination will be made on every transaction. If within the client file we don't see a record, based on that that high level procedure where it's done in every transaction, we wouldn't question it because it's, it's a, it's part of the process. But in order for us to make the, to be 100% certain that that has been done, it's always good to see it within the records. So if, you know, perhaps it could be a, just a check, a uh, tick box saying, have you made the determination? Yes. Is this client and uh, a politically exposed person or uh, head of an interna international organization? No then we know that it's been done. Yeah, that's it. That's good advice. Um, now, you were just talking about the uh, STR or the suspicious transaction report. Yeah. For those of our listeners who don't know, a suspicious transaction report is an electronic submission to FinTrack about a specific transaction that, you know, like I said before, it doesn't pass the smell test or, or you know, uh, your spidey senses are tingling. Something is not right. Maybe you can't put your finger right on it, but something for sure is not right. You've got a, you've got a gut check problem and you got to tell somebody about it. That's where the STR comes in. And the, um, the STR, and you've, you've spoken a bit about it already, uh, Mark, but the STR is, is that something that brokerages, should fear like if they put that in are they calling down the wrath of the federal government upon their brokerage or you know what what would be the next step so they put in an str because something does, doesn't seem right and they feel like they have to tell someone what's the next step from there are they going to get a phone call they're going to get a letter are they never going to hear back what's the what's the situation there first of all they should not be feared uh they their name it's remains that their involvement or their uh, declaration remains anonymous and so part of that uh Anonymity is 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 we do we do not go back to a uh, real estate brokerage to obtain additional additional information. Therefore, that's why it's vital. In what we there's a section in the suspicious transaction report called uh, Part G, where you provide the detail of uh, the transaction itself. And actually, just to, to correct you, it, it could be a multitude of transactions that's occurred throughout the years. Mm -hmm. So perhaps. Uh, you know, a client has conducted five transactions with the reporting uh, with a reporting entity or the real estate brokerage in this case um, throughout a, uh, X amount of years. But, you know, previously the the suspicious indicators were not seen, but in this case it is. You know, one can conclude that, OK, well, if, if I've reached reasonable grounds to suspect for this transaction, most likely the four other ones that happened previously are, are, are as suspicious as well. Um, and it could also be a, an attempted transaction, not a completed transaction. Mm. So say if I came, if I it was a client looking to, to, to obtain representation as a buyer for, uh, to buy a property, but then, you know, I'm asked questions, I'm hesitant. I don't want to ask him. And then, 
you know, there's some hearsay that I may be involved in this uh, or other, you know, perhaps adverse news found open through open source search. Um, I'll then you then you then the agent may say, no, I, I can no longer conduct the transaction. This could be a situation where it's not complete, but it's, a, it's an attempted one. Yeah, I think that's great. And um, the other thing that I was thinking about when it comes to suspicious transaction reports, and you touched on it already, if you have a mortgage broker who thinks something is suspicious and they put in an STR, and then you have a lawyer who thinks something is suspicious and they put in an STR and the lender does the same thing. And you know, there's a bunch of people within the realm or the sphere of that transaction. And the brokerage doesn't because they're fearing the idea that they may not be able to uh, complete the transaction or they're not going to, you know, they're going to make their client angry or something, um, then all of a sudden you really run into a situation or a risk that uh, FinTrack may look at the brokerage and that agent as somebody who's suspicious because everybody else realized that this was suspicious, but the brokerage never reported. Is that something that would, is, would be said as accurate? Uh, yes. And I was just, I was going to correct you. Like the, the lawyers, that's another, um, topic that I think that we'll probably discuss <laughs> as well, but, uh, uh, and I'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit, but, uh, yeah. So in essence, if there's other sectors that fall within our act that submit a suspicious transaction report. So there's various sectors. There's the financial institutions, which is, uh, banks, uh, they could be uh, credit unions, you know, it could be a jeweler, it could be, uh, somebody within the security sector, um, if they're submitting the reports and, and the real estate broker does not, and there's sufficient evidence to conclude that one should have been reported, then you really run the risk of a reputational risk in this case. And not just so much reputa reputa reputational risk on the brokerage end, but on the agent that's conducted the transaction, but also their colleagues, the other agents, because if it's known that ABC brokerage has not conducted their due diligence and facilitated a money laundering or, or didn't have the, the, the sufficient controls in place to, to be able to detect it, um, you know, there might be potential clients that do not want to deal with this brokerage and that's a loss of business. So in that essence, what I would suggest is uh, I go back to having a robust compliance program in place, ensuring that, you know, you have uh, an effective documented procedure for agents and employees within the brokerage to follow. You have a solid risk assessment that encompasses uh, the elements within the business structure itself, the business model, uh, which will allow the, 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 the um, real estate brokerage to determine what areas do elevated risk persist. Therefore, they will be able to apply additional resources uh, to, to mitigate those. Uh, having an, an effective training program plan uh, in place uh, where initial training is provided, but ongoing training is also uh, part of that curriculum. And, you know, a lot of, for example, even case studies or, or scenarios, real case scenarios where people could relate to could, uh, could be part of that training program. Uh, it's not a requirement on our, on our end, but from my experience, obviously we're all human and we really relate to something that we could foresee ourselves being involved in. So, uh, case studies have been one method where uh, you're able to uh, obtain the uh, the attention of those that are being trained. Uh, and also one of the other compliance program elements is a, what we call a two-year review. So it's, it's a, it's a self-review of your program to test the effectiveness. 
And this is something that we require reporting entities to do once every two years. And um, simply just saying that I have a compliance program in place, that I have a risk assessment and I train my employees, is it's really looking at it at a presence level and not so much uh, of the uh, testing the application or the effectiveness of the mm -hmm. program. So what, what so some suggestions on that end would be interviewing some of the eight-year agents within the brokerage to determine uh, do they comprehend scenarios? Do, uh, do they have an understanding if, a, if certain scenarios take place? Who do they need to contact? What needs to be done? Um, uh, are they aware of suspicious indicators? And, and within our website, we have a list of suspicious indicators specific to the real estate sector that would help assist agents and also compliance programs uh, be able to uh, determine when certain transactions or attempted transactions warrant uh, a better look at them to determine if, if a suspicious transaction report should be submitted to FinTrack. Yeah, no, that that's good advice. And of course, the compliance regime is something that every broker should be should be working on and and active in, um, especially if they are the compliance officer for uh, for the brokerage as the reporting entity as well. Which a, a lot of brokers do double duty. Um, let, let's just uh, as we as we wrap it up here, Mark. I wanted to talk a little bit about exceptions, and we touched on it just a second ago. Um, uh, in regards to lawyers, uh, are lawyers exempt from FinTrack reporting? As per the uh, 2015 decision of the Supreme Court, uh, lawyers do not have the obligation to report to FinTrack uh, as legal professionals are not covered under the Act. Okay. Um, however, we do have a mechanism in place for businesses and individuals that do not fall under the Act uh, to provide voluntary information uh that may that may contain suspicious indicators mm. so would that mean that a, a lawyer if they thought something was suspicious that they should they should be notifying fintrack is that the idea yes so we have like i said we have that mechanism in place so they don't fall under our act right. uh but we do strongly encourage that that information is provided to us uh if, again if warranted through a voluntary uh information report Okay, I, I know one of the other ones that that comes up frequently, or at least question is questioned frequently, is large corporations and trusts. So I think the I think what's mentioned in the regulations. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's seventy five million or more in valuation for that corporation. How the heck is a is a realtor supposed to know if it's seventy five million and one or? <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying. Like, it, is there some practical advice you can give in relation to that? Yeah, well, it's usually it's usually seen through. It, it would be seen through audited uh, balance sheets. Okay. And it, and and uh, uh, one other instance too is the those share the shares would have to be traded within a Canadian stock exchange or a foreign stock exchange uh, that exists within a country that's part of that is a member of the Financial Action Task Force, which is also known as FATF FATF. Um, so there's and usually if somebody, if an organization is within a stock exchange and those balance sheet, those financial statements are available online. Could, could you also look at their market cap and, and make a determination that way? Or is that not accurate enough? Well, the $75 million would have to be, it would have to be beyond that amount. So in order, however that's determined, uh, that would be kind of like the, the, the trigger point, so to speak, right? If right. it's above seventy-five million, it's seventy-five million dollars or more, and it's they're able to obtain that through some uh, an audited balance sheet. 
uh, and they're also traded within the stock ex uh, the uh, Canadian stock exchange um, or a foreign stock ex exchange again that's that's a within a country that's a member of our FATF uh, then they would be in a situation where a client idea record keeping is not uh, is not required yeah and the reason for that is they probably have other mechanisms or or whatever in order to to be tracked when they get to that size is that why uh yeah it just it's their their information is publicly known yeah. so there's no obscurity i guess so to speak where you know in situations when you're dealing with a client uh it's a lot of verbal attestation right yeah and you, you really you know you, you could have something in your in your policies and procedures where you conduct an online online uh, open search for the client just to validate what they've that what they've told you there's a lot of people are on LinkedIn they have a web presence um, you know that 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 could be a level of ongoing monitoring that a, a brokerage could adopt you know in in situations you know going back to the enhanced due diligence component where you know for higher risk clients we require uh, more enhanced due, more enhanced uh, review or due diligence and more frequent ongoing monitoring. Yeah. Uh, one of the ways you could fulfill the frequent ongoing monitoring is uh, having a system in place where you conduct open source searches on those clients to see if there's any adverse news. Mm. And in, in the case that there's adverse news, you know, found, you know, say three months ago, if those five transactions that occurred in previous years, now those transactions are in question. So going back to the uh, suspicious transaction reporting obligation, it's when an organization has made reasonable ground, when they've reached reasonable grounds to suspect that a transaction, an attempted transaction or a multitude of transactions uh, may have money laundering or terrorist financing involved. So in that case, if there's some adverse news found on one client, uh, there's five transactions in the STR, the suspicious transaction report that would be submitted to FinTrack based on the reasonable grounds suspect being reached. We would, we would, we would want the information on those four previous transactions because they could also involve a multitude of additional parties. And therefore, when we have that information, then we could create that web of intelligence because perhaps uh, uh, an individual that was involved with this client on three transactions ago there was a suspicious transaction reported on that person, then we could make that web, we could create that web of intelligence. Right, yeah. So this one's probably an easy one, but how about governments, crown corporations, banks, they're already, you know, plugged into the FinTrack apparatus. Am I right? Is Are those, like, what I mean by that is if the town of Tofield is buying or selling a piece of property, do we need to get, um, do we need to get FinTrack identifications and things done for those guys, or because of their the nature of their of their, you know, business as a you know a government or a crown corporation or a bank, do they do they fall outside of that? Yeah, they, no. All levels of government, municipal, provincial, and federal, along with crown agencies, are exempt from client identification. Okay, banks, same thing. Banks, same thing, because they would. Most like the banks would be on on a stock exchange, and their assets would most likely be seventy five million dollars or more. Right. Oh yeah. In uh, the instance that they're not, then they wouldn't fall within that category. Therefore, the client identification would have to be obtained. Oh, okay, I don't know of any Canadian banks that make less than seventy five million exactly. a day. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Exactly. So, <laughs> well, this it, it almost becomes a viewpoint in that case. Totally. Right? Yeah. But yeah. this has been uh, this has been really fun, Mark. I sure appreciate your time, and I and I know that this has been a long time coming for us. So I really appreciate the the wealth of knowledge and experience that you've been able to share with us. Any final words of wisdom for our listeners before we before we end the podcast today? Yeah, I would just say you know going back to having a a, a robust compliance program in place. Um, it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be lengthy. It, meaning that it doesn't it doesn't have to be a hundred pages or eighty pages. I would the suggestion that I would say is it really depends on the size of your organization. But as long as you have a procedure in place to fulfill all of your obligations obligations that could be found on our website, um, and even if you stated it in plain language, you don't have to you don't have to be eloquent with it as long as you say yes in this instance this is what we do you know there, there could be five different methods for obtaining uh, id and actually one thing i forgot to note is we actually have videos uh, some videos on explaining each of those methods that are on our website that people could could view as well oh. but you know for a bro for a brokerage it may be just simply you know we only upset we only obtain photo id and you know they they don't, you know, they, they note that they have the ability to obtain the, you know, to apply the credit file method or the reliance method or in a mandatory whatnot or an affiliate method. But uh, they really look to, to conduct the photo ID method as this is the, the easiest way to obtain um, to uh, obtain a client identification. Uh, just explaining in, in words that they understand and the their agents understand, because in most cases, part of a training program or plan is to utilize the documents that they have on hand uh, for their agents and their employees to review in order to be trained. And so if it's obviously complex, it's 100 pages long, you know, it's it's not concise. People are really just going to, you know, they're going to read it, but they may not absorb everything that they read. So um, really look at your own business model, depending on the complexity of it, just make it simple. Uh, make sure that you apply what you state that you're going to do. Yeah. So on, when we do when we do conduct examinations, we look to see okay, you have a well documented procedure, but if it's not applied in practice, then it's the, the it's not um, it, it's ineffective. Right. So we really look to see that it's applied in practice, and and um, you know there might be situations like for example the beneficial beneficial ownership piece that you that you asked me about is is a requirement to keep a record. You know, it, it's just a simple ticking off the box saying that it's been done. Mm -hmm. Because then it will, perhaps an agent is going through their paperwork, they're completing the identification record, uh, and they miss, may miss obtaining that information. But it's if it's within the, that the templated record that they have to do that, then it just triggers them the, them to 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 make that determination. Right. So, and one final one final comment I would say is, you know, you don't have to be an investigator. All you have to do is apply. Uh, some common sense and really leverage off the experience that one has. So if something does not seem right, if you have questions, I would advise you to contact your compliance officer. And if you are a compliance officer and you're approached by agents that have these, um, these uh, concerns, really look at the records, look at past transactions, really try to establish a trend. Does this make sense? And if it doesn't make sense, then there should be a procedure in place of how you obtain, how you conduct that due diligence. And if reasonable grounds to suspect have been uh, have been uh, reached, 
which means you don't have to prove uh, you don't have to prove that money laundering may be involved, but you could by simply noting that the indicators are present. That's when that's would be a scenario where we would require you to really look at the situation and if if warranted submit that suspicious transaction report to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the suspicious transaction report really is a, a, a big component. And um, I really believe that the real estate industry can do a lot better in that regard. And I think that there's a, a real value that can be brought to bear for uh, the FinTrack apparatus overall. And, and just again, just bringing it back to the center, we, we do all of this. We're talking about this in this episode and, and all of the things that go into the, the FinTrack regime because we can all agree we don't want to fund terrorism. We don't want to uh, allow money laundering for child trafficking and slave trade around the world. We think those things are gone, but they're not. Um, those things require money and and they're, the money comes out clean from normal everyday transactions that things that that happen just like in real estate. So if we can take these simple steps in order to use common sense to determine, is this right? Is this wrong? Does this pass the sniff test? We can actually make meaningful change in in the global community when it comes to some of these things that all societies agree are wrong. So I think that sort of really brings it back down to back down to earth why we're talking about the nitty gritty here at, at FinTrack. Definitely. And uh, one thing, one other last thing I wanted to plug in, in is uh, on our website, we do have the ability for, um, for your listeners to sign up to our mailing list. Mm. And within those mailing lists, there'll be uh, new publications that come out such as operational alerts, um, operational briefs, perhaps within the real estate sector. And I, there is a, already an operational brief within the real estate sector that talks about the indicators. So if you're able to visit our website and review that, that would be definitely beneficial for um, in order to uh, maintain a, a robust compliance program and for your own knowledge as well. But you're, if you if you do sign up, then you'll be um, it'll be all the information will be up to date, or you'll be up to date to all the information that's made available. Um, so just want to make that one last plug in before I leave today. Yeah, that's great. Thanks again, Mark. We really appreciate all the time that you've given to us and, and thank you for sharing your wisdom and your, and your experience with us today. This has been a great episode. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Anytime. All right. Take care. Thanks again, Mark, for sharing your experience and knowledge on this important role that realtors and brokerages play in this web of intelligence. If you found this podcast helpful, be sure to share it with friends and colleagues who could also benefit from these very practical episodes. For additional real estate practice information, check out our blog called Practically Speaking, which can be found on our website, albertarealtor.ca. And we look forward to seeing you next time. We are in your area.